Good. Good morning. Morning, morning. Hey, uh, LifePoint family, welcome back. It's good to see you today. Uh, guests, grateful that you're here. I've had a chance to meet a couple of you this morning, but my name's Kale. I'm the teaching pastor here at the Delaware campus, and we're thrilled that you're here uh, with us. A couple of things before we uh, jump in. If you do have a Bible, you can turn to Nehemiah chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. I know we were there uh, to some extent recently, but we're going to return to that passage this morning. Um, a couple of things, though, before we dive in. One, I mentioned uh, last week, Trunktober is coming up, sort of our fall festival, a great opportunity for us to invite people from the community. Uh, and so a couple of things around with that. There are some invite cards out at Guest Central where you can grab those, hand them to neighbors or friends or classmates or whatever. There are some yard signs as well. Connections team, thanks for putting all those together uh, this morning. So grab a yard sign. Uh, those probably self-explanatory. Those go in your yard, and so put them in there in your yard, and a great way to invite others as well. Uh, I mentioned last week we were, I think, at two of the 40 trunks that we need, and uh, you guys responded great. We're up to 20, right? So if you're doing math here, right, that's 18 folks that responded, Uh, but while we're doing math, that also means we're at 50%. So in grade school, that's an F, if you remember, right? Like actually solidly in that F minus range, and so uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just having some fun. But seriously, um, if you have a chance, right, you know you're doing a trunk, uh, help us out. Uh, you can do that even now. Just hop on the LifePoint Ohio app or at lpguest.com if you're new and you're like, hey, I want to do a trunk. Well, there's instructions there on what to do, but sign up to do a trunk. Let's get that filled up here in the next week or so. And so we're ready for Trunktober uh, toward the end of the month. Um, Trunktober is really run by LifePoint Kids. They do a great job. Speaking of LifePoint Kids, I want to take a moment uh, just to recognize a couple of things this morning. We don't always, we don't announce every staff transition from stage as we grow, right? That's going to happen more and more, but we are uh, excited, sad, and excited. So um, Ann Lown, who's our LifePoint Kids, she's been our Littles and Juniors Director, has stepped on full-time uh, to be our Children's Director. We're th- absolutely, we are thrilled. So we're thrilled for her to come on full-time. We believe she's the right person for that. She's going to do a great job. Um, At the same time, part of that whole transition was uh, just some change in the McNeil's life. And so Janae has taken a full-time teaching position, or full-time teaching position. So not leaving ministry, just ministering in a different way. But she has stepped out of the crew director uh, position and closed out her time uh, there. So she is probably not going to love this, but I'm going to ask Janae, would you stand up? And uh, she has been leading for more than half a decade in this position. Thank you and well done. Thank you and well done. So Janae, when Janae stepped on uh, as the children's director and then to the crew director, we were actually still in our old facility. And if you were here during that time, how many of us were here meeting in the old facility, right? Uh, Absolutely. You remember, right? The children's space in particular was just phenomenal. I mean, it was really a wonderful space. I think we had like three whole rooms and there was a kitchen being used as a room and it was uh, was totally safe and great. So um, Janae Janae has helped uh, shepherd that from that place where we were, right? So where we are today. And Janae, we are super grateful. Uh, for you, for your family, Brian, for all you guys' work. And they are staying here, continuing to serve here, right? They're not going anywhere, just a change and a shift in responsibility. So thank you, thank you. Well, we are kicking off a brand new series today that we're calling uh, Ordinary People. We're going to be looking at this reality, and we've said things like this before, but it's sort of a theme across the scriptures that God uses ordinary people, people like us, uh, to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. Um, Of course, when you look over the story arc of scripture, 
right? When you look at the narrative of scripture, the centerpiece is the Lord himself. It's about him, right? We get included into his story. It's about the son of God. It's about Jesus coming for you and me. God sending his own son because he so loved the world that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We've sung the song before, right? His cross and our freedom. It's his death that brought us our forgiveness, his resurrection that brings us redemption and new life. And yet also, incredibly, over the pages of Scripture and across the pages of history, you see that the work of God is carried out by people like you and me, leading up to the cross, after the cross, as Jesus then commissions out the church. You see the gospel carried forward, and certainly people that we know their names, the apostles and others, but then many that we don't know their names. I've told you before, one of my favorite you know, parts in the, in the book of Acts is just knowing that Antioch, the place that becomes the church planting hub across the entire sort of New Testament world, we don't even know who planted the church there. It just says them, some of the disciples, people whose names we don't even know, people who are just saying, Lord, here I am, use me. And it's easy sometimes to think that maybe I have to have a title or a position or power or influence or prestige if God's going to use me. And listen, do you have some of those things? If you're in positions of influence, can God use that? Of course he can. Praise God. Submit it to him. Don't be prideful. Recognize that it's God who's put you in that position for his glory. Use it for the sake of the kingdom. But also recognize if you have none of those things, a heart surrendered to the Father, a heart surrendered to the Lord and a life that says, God, here I am, use me. God can use you. He can use you to build his kingdom. It's through just the small, quiet decisions of discipleship, quiet decisions of obedience that God pushes the kingdom forward. I think about whenever I have a chance, I reference Lord of the Rings because I should. And so J.R.R. Tolkien uh, says it well, right? When you think about his books, right? So three of the greatest books of all time that were later turned without question into the three greatest movies of all time. Um, you think about the plot of those films and those books, it's, it's a lot of powerful people. Wizards, right? It's a world of wizards and elves and kings and great lords and ladies who all do their part, certainly. And at the end of the day, yet it is the small, quiet decisions of a few hobbits that end up turning and tipping the scales. It's some hobbits who say, I know we, we're not large, we don't mean a lot in the world, but we're here and we're available, so we'll do what needs to be done. Small, quiet decisions by everyday people that move it forward. And so in some ways, right, this series is going to be about that. It's about, it's about our core value, right? We have five core values here. And one of those is personal ministry. Personal ministry that, hey, that we are servants, that God has brought us into his family, but then he sends us back out. And his desire is that we would use our time, our talents, and our treasures for the sake of his kingdom, that we would be used by him and say, Lord, here I am, use me. And so in Nehemiah 3, we're going to see some folks who step up, right? There's a task at hand. There's work that needs to be done for a greater purpose and vision and mission. And people from all different uh, sides and sections of society step up and sort of meet the call. So let me give you the background here to Nehemiah 3, uh, 586 BC, right? A little timeline, a little history, which some of you I know love and others of you just stick with me, all right? 586 BC, the Babylonians come in and decimate Jerusalem. They destroy the city, the temple, the wall, 
They take many of the Israelites. The, the exile had already begun in some ways. Things were in real decline for some time, but 586 is the hammer stroke. And they take many of the people into exile. It is, uh, I think, without question, the worst moment in the history of the people of Israel up until that time. It's unthinkable to many of them. I mean, the temple, Jerusalem, this is God's city. This is the temple. This is where we worship. And the fact that God would let, and actually that God would ordain, that God would bring the Babylonians in as a punishment against his people for their centuries-long disobedience, it's a, it's a, natural, a national disaster. And it's tempting for them to think, well, God has totally abandoned us. And yet what we see over the pages of Scripture is that he hasn't. Some decades later, under Cyrus the Persian, right, God moves on the heart of Babylon to come in and punish, but then he moves on the heart of Persia to come in and restore. Under Cyrus the Persian, some of the Jewish people get to go home, and 70 years after the destruction of the temple, 516 BC, the temple is rebuilt and rededicated, and hope is in some ways rekindled. Now, where we're at Nehemiah 3, we think it's sometime in the 440s BC, right? So another sort of 70, 80 years later, and a guy named Nehemiah, who's the cupbearer to Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. He's got a very prominent and important position. He has the ear of the king. And what happens is that Nehemiah hears from his brother and some other Israelites who've come back from Jerusalem, the state of Jerusalem and Judah. And it's not good. They tell them, yes, the temple's been rebuilt, right? Yes, the people have come back, but the remnant is not doing well. The wall around Jerusalem and the wall represented, right, the fortification of the city, the protection of the city. He says it lies in ruins, right? Where it's shameful. And so what happens is that God stirs this kind of holy passion in Nehemiah where he's like, well, then let's go back and do something about it. Let's go back and let's rebuild. Let's help rebuild the city and let's help God's people ultimately for the flourishing of God's people. So he goes to the king. He's extremely nervous about it. His job is supposed to be happy, be in the king's presence. And he's sad and the king notices it. And so he's like, oh Lord, help me, right? He's asking me, what's the problem? I'm gonna go ahead and tell him. So he tells the king of Persia what the problem is, what his desire is. And this king who earlier stopped the work looks at him and says, man, go. In fact, what do you need in order to go? And so God gives Nehemiah favor with the king of Persia to go back and to rebuild the wall. And so there we pick up in Nehemiah 3. Nehemiah goes back, assesses the situation, eventually calls on the people to say, hey, let's rebuild. Let's rebuild our city, in particular the wall around our city. And so this is what happens. There's a lot of names here, all right? Lots of names. This is all of chapter three, basically. It says, then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. And the sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors. By the way, if you're a Hebrew scholar here today, just come help me later with some of these names, right? Um, I, I'm not an expert in that. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles, here we go, listen to this, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. This one's just for free. If you're wondering like, what notes should I take out of this? Here's one, don't be like the nobles. You can write that, don't be like the, and what is it about the nobles? It's their pride 
That work is beneath us. We're not going to do manual labor. We're not going to give of our time, our energy, our effort, or our resources to be a part of this. And I think in some ways it's bigger than that. Yes, it's their pride, but also just note the tragic nature of it. Here the people of God are coming together to do a work, and because of their pride, they miss out. They've got their own agenda, their own things. I got my own life going, my own, I, I have too much stuff on my plate, and so they miss out, and it's tragic, and I don't want it for any of us, that we would miss out on what God is doing because we're so busy with our own agenda, so busy building our own little kingdoms that we miss out on being a part of the kingdom. And, doing, and being a part of what God is doing. And they won't stoop. They refuse to be a part of it. It goes on in verse 6. More names. It says, they laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. That uh, phrase is repeated over and over and over. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And then in verse 8, it says, next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Go down to verse 12. It says, next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district, repaired. He and his daughters, men and women. This goes on, by the way, for all of chapter 3. Name after name after group of people after group of people repairing some section of the wall. Until finally it finishes up in verse 32. And it says, and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. By my count, right, I tried to count. My study Bible said over 40. My count was 44. 44 different people or groups of people who are involved in the, rep- the repairing of the wall. For it's, I mean, it's literally hundreds or even thousands of people who are involved in this work. The high priest, priests, this is all who's named here. The high priest, priests. Levites, the temple servants, governors and rulers, goldsmiths and tradesmen, merchants, perfumers, right? People who work in perfume, daughters of Shalom, the men of Jericho, the inhabitants of Zenoa, the Tekoites, and on and on and on and on. So what do we do with that? What do we learn from it? Let me offer a few things. Number one, the mission unifies. The mission unifies. It brings the people together. Think about this for a moment. I just said hundreds, if not thousands of people are involved in this work. And it is people from all different slices and sections of society. Men and women, rich and poor, skilled and unskilled, the religious elite, the captains of industry, rulers, servants, the powerful, and those on the bottom of society, top to bottom. But what unifies them is not their station in life, not their level of wealth and not what they're from or where they're from, but it's the mission before them. Hey, there's work to be done for the sake of the kingdom. And they come together and they unify around that. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Morgan and I were talking about this. It was just one of those mornings that you walk away and say, Lord, thank you. That morning in the weeks since and the weeks before, like I just got to meet so many people in our church and I was just humbled and thrilled that God continues to bring people into this family from so many different walks of life. I mean, just in that morning, in a couple, in the span of a few weeks, I met middle-aged single guy, single mom, couples, families, grandparents, great-grandparents. There are babies everywhere, right? Uh, People who financially have everything. People who financially have next to nothing. 
I know people in our church who have lived in Delaware their entire lives and their parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents before them. And at the same time, I meet somebody who moves in from out of state, it seems like every week. A couple of weeks ago, I got to meet two families who've emigrated here from thousands of miles away from different countries. And I just was humbled and saying, Lord, thank you that you continue to do this and diversify us as a representation of our city and as a representation of the kingdom. And what's really, really uh, awesome to me is I look around and I see us and I talk to people and I think, I don't think these are people who just in the normal flow of life would necessarily run into each other and spend time together. But the reason we're together is not because of our stations of life and our backgrounds, our ethnicities, our work jobs, our our socioeconomics. What brings us together is our identity in Christ and the mission of God. We're brothers and sisters. We're this family. And God's bringing a family together. And what brings us together and unifies us is our gospel identity and the mission that God has given us. Go make disciples of all nations, starting right here in the city of Delaware, across central Ohio, our state, then to the nation, and then to the world. The mission unifies. Secondly, this, the mission moves forward when everyone does their part. The mission moves forward when everyone does their part. Please note this, Nehemiah doesn't come in and say, look, we got to build a wall. I need the 10 best workers. I need the 10 most skilled uh, folks in mortar and brick. And you guys are going to work day and night because you're the experts and everyone else will gather around and cheer you on. Now, what happens? He says, hey, let's rise up and let's build. And so he says, man, everybody comes from different stations of life, from different uh, positions across Judah, from top to bottom. And it really doesn't even matter what their skill set is. I'm not sure the perfumer was like, I know how to build walls, right? I mean, that's not the person's skill set, but it was just, hey, this is the work that needs to be done. And so everybody chipped in. And as the old adage goes, many hands make light work. I think about our church. And I, to be honest, this has been sort of our, our passion from the beginning and something for us from the beginning is we don't want a church where a, a few are doing the discipleship and everybody else spectates. I think sometimes that's happened in church life. Many of us can attest to that, right? You're watching the staff or the pastors or the missionaries and you're like, they're the ones who do the discipleship. We sort of spectate and we've said from the beginning, that's not what we want. From what I read in the scriptures, Ephesians 4, my job, right, the pastoral staff's job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's not a select few who are doing the discipleship. It's the community of God that's doing the discipleship. And it's for us to all jump in and say, hey, Lord, what do you want to use me for? How do you want to use the giftings that you've given me? How do you want to use my time and my talents and my treasures for the sake of the kingdom? because I don't want to sit by and watch a few people be involved. No, it's the whole community, the whole body of faith saying, Lord, what, what can we do? What can I do? How can we do this together and move the mission forward? I've told you this before, right? Our city continues to grow pretty rapidly. Our county continues to grow pretty rapidly, right? Our, here, uh, the last census, right, 2010, we were somewhere around 34,000 people in the city. We were over 40 or 41 in 2020, Uh, That's like six of my hometowns, right? We grew by like six of my hometowns in that time where I'm from, little village, right? And I think about that, the city of Delaware growing by tens of thousands during that time. We're not going to reach the city or the county by a select few saying, hey, it's my job. We will reach the city and the county by saying, hey, it's us 
the people of God as brothers and sisters, all doing our part. Third, this is so important. We have to see the vision behind the work. We have to see the vision behind the work. Another way that this is sometimes said is you have to see the why behind the what. Let me ask you something. What was Nehemiah's vision? What were the Israelites doing? You might say, well, Cale, it's pretty simple. They were rebuilding a wall. And I would say, no, right? That's not the vision. That may be the work they're doing at that moment, but the vision, the vision's not the wall. The vision is the future flourishing of the people and the glory of God. Rebuilding a section around the city, that just happens to be what the work, the work that needs to be done at that moment. You see, his vision is bigger than that. His mission, the, hey, this is where we're headed. That's the vision. He says, this is the work that needs to be done in order for us to do that. He sends out the call and says, let's rise, let's rise up and let's rebuild the wall. And everybody gets involved, but it's, it's not, and this is where it's so important. He's saying, it's not just about this. It's not even primarily about this. It's about the future flourishing of our people and the glory of God. And so that's why everyone can sit there and say, what are you doing? And they can say, well, I'm not just putting down the mortar. And I'm not just digging holes. And I'm not just setting bolts and doors and bars. What I'm really doing, no, what are you doing? What I'm really doing is building something that's going to lead to the flourishing of our people and our community and will foster joy and life in the generations to come. And ultimately, that will lead to the glory of God himself. This message, this whole series, as we talk about personal ministry and being servants, right, we're going to talk about outside of Sunday morning, my hope and my desire for us is that you really begin to see and own, Lord, how have you gifted me? And how do you want to use those giftings? How do you want me to go into my family, into the home and lead and serve in the home? How do you want me to go into the classroom and lead and serve in the classroom? How do you want me to go into the workplace and be a light in the darkness there? How do you want me to be salt and light in every area of my life? God, how do you want me to participate in moving the kingdom forward? And I'll say, right, Monday through Saturday, like that's my hope. And also as we gather on Sunday morning, one particular thing during this series and one particular thing this morning, one very practical implication of this, I'm gonna make a very pointed ask for some of us, right, who call Life Point home, who call, you say, this is my church and you've yet to take a step to serve on a life team. You're not yet serving on a Sunday morning context. And some of our life teams do serve outside of Sunday morning, our middle school and high school life teams on Sunday night, uh, our kids resource team that gathers together. There, there are opportunities outside of Sunday morning. But I'm gonna ask for those of us who say, hey, this is my home. This is my church. To take that attitude of Christ who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many and say, hey, as we gather here on a Sunday morning to take a step and to jump onto a team. And here's what's so important. As you do that, I hope you will see and you will feel the vision behind the work and that you'll realize, man, I'm never just holding a baby. I'm never just teaching a kid. I'm never just holding a door. I'm never just greeting someone in the parking lot. I'm never just serving on security. What I'm doing is I'm serving my fellow brothers and sisters and I'm serving the people who come here on a Sunday morning and they're looking for a relationship with God and wondering, is he there? I am participating in the mission of God and moving it forward. That's what this is really about. It's not about holding the door. That's something we do to try to say, hey, we're glad that you're here and we want you to come and meet Jesus.
we've got to see and maintain and understand what's the vision and what's the mission behind the work. There's a, a gentleman here, he's in my neighborhood, uh, disconnected from church for some time, and he recently told me, Kale, the friendliness here, it's made me feel like home in just five weeks. We've had parents, right, who they drop their kiddos off in LifePoint Kids, and it's tough, right? Kids are screaming, and our LifePoint Kids volunteers are back there like, we got this, right? You go. And we've heard, like, those parents are like, that's the first time we got to sit together alone and listen to something together in a long, long time. I had two folks the other day comment on, they said, hey, this person from the parking lot team, they just made us feel so welcome. It's like, that's because that guy's awesome, right? And he loves Jesus. Like, praise God. Like people out in the parking lot going, it's not about just parking, not even primarily. I'm not just parking people. I'm setting the tone from the moment they arrive because we want them to know that they're loved by God. Repent of your sin, trust him, and find life in Jesus. We got to see the vision behind the work. Just this weekend, I learned of a young man who said, hey, before the Lord brought me here into this church family, I was at a deep, dark place in my life in the aftermath of a broken relationship. And then the Lord brought me here. And he said, I have found in Christ through the community of faith, a peace and a joy that I didn't think I could have again. We've baptized here at this campus 24 people so far this year. Dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens more across all of our campuses. And I want us to see that and celebrate it and say, hey, as we jump onto teams and as we serve and as we do, as we host in our homes at Life Group and you're like, why are we doing this? Right For that, for the glory of God, for the making of disciples, see the vision behind the work. Now, I want to show you a few slides here. Let's get just practical here for a moment. So this is the number of Life Team members, right? So we've asked all of our campuses to go through their teams and say, hey, how many people would you need to step up and to serve and to do part of the work in order to be at a, a really healthy place? That's the number for Delaware. Seeing 76. We've got hundreds of people who are serving. And if you're serving right now on a Life Team, I just want to say thank you. Like, thank you. And if you're here today and you're like, I'm not yet serving on a team. I'm not, isn't about shaming you, trying to guilt trip you into it. I'm saying, hey, see the need. See the vision. Right, 76, and we've actually broken this down by teams. You can go to the next slide here, right? Just look over some of these numbers, right? These are the numbers, the, the number of people they say, hey, we could use that number of people to step onto a team in our particular life team, right? Creative arts, connections, kids, right? Worship, security, students. Students would be middle school and high school. Go to the next slide here. The writing team, facilities, life group leadership, next steps, production, admin, these are the numbers of people, right? And it totals up to 76 people across our campuses. And so uh, what we're going to do is, here in a little bit, I'm, I'm going to close out. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to end a little bit early. And out in the lobby, you noticed when you walked in, there are banners set up everywhere. There's going to be a person from every single life team, a representative from every single life team in the lobby. And I'm asking, man, if you call LifePoint your home, hey, go out there and meet that person and take a step today. And look, I get it, right? Some of us are like, Kale, I don't know that I feel particularly gifted in children's ministry, right? And I would say, again, I'm not sure the perfumers felt particularly gifted at wall building. And yet sometimes you say, you know what? That's the work that needs to be done. I'll do it. And look, I, I hope, like, that's not the only way in which I want you to serve. I believe God has uniquely gifted you. And you're going to find as you follow him ways in which you're saying, I mean, I see how my gifting is being used. And other times it's a matter of saying, you know what, that's the work that needs to be done. Lord, here I am. I have the time. I have the availability. 
and we'll help you, we'll train you. There's a background check process and there's a training and shadowing process. We're not gonna throw you in somewhere and say, good luck, I hope it goes well, right? There's a process for that. But we're asking you today to take a step and to see the vision behind the work. Let me close with this. If you see nothing else from Nehemiah 3, I hope you see this. God is incredibly faithful. God is incredibly faithful. And I chose the word incredibly, purposefully, right? Incredible, I mean literally like beyond belief. Like can he really be that faithful? Think about where this is placed in the overall story of the scriptures and redemption. 150 years before this, God sent the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem as a punishment against his people for their continued disobedience. It's a national, as I said, disaster. And it would have been so easy for the people of Israel to think, God has completely and finally abandoned us. And yet, decades later, God moves on the heart of another king, the king of Persia. And under Cyrus, the Jewish people are allowed to go home and they rebuild the temple. Hope is rekindled. And then 150 years later, do you know what happened on October? Do you know what happened here in Ohio, October 2nd of 1872? Me neither. <laughs> I have no idea. Because <laughs> it's 150, I'm a history major, right? And even I'm like, I have no idea. No one cares, right? It's a long time ago. And yet, here's the thing. It's a long time to us. It is not a long time to God. We forget. Generations move on. Sometimes we make promises and we break them. God does not. He is a good father who never forgets his promises. When he says it, he will do it. The scripture says, is he a man that he would change his mind? Has he said something and not done it? He promised his people faithfulness. He promised David, there'd be a king after your line on the throne forever. And so here, 150 years later, he brings the people back. And then more than 400 years later, God fulfills the greatest promise. As he moves once again, and it's his own heart that's moved. And he sends not Nehemiah, but his own son. And Jesus comes not to rebuild a city, but to build a kingdom. And he does that by going to the cross. And Jesus goes to the cross for you and for me. And God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And it's a kingdom into which we enter not by any physical gate, but through repentance and faith. Jesus is the gate. We look to him, our substitute, who took our sin upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. And we look to him who rose again on the third day with victory in his hands. And we look to him and say, because you live, because Jesus lives, we too will live. And so I wanna close and I want us to pray and I wanna ask you, where are you today? Have you entered into the kingdom? Have you repented of sin, not tried to rationalize it or justify it? Have you repented of sin and trusted Jesus the Savior, the one God sent for you and for me? Have you trusted him with your life and are you working in his kingdom? And if you are, if you're saying, yes, I've trusted him, well, what step do you need to take today to be a part of what he's doing? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. It is unending, enduring. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God, in a world that changes as quickly as ours, 
we root ourselves and we anchor ourselves in and on you. We come back to you, to your character, to your goodness, to your faithfulness, and we sing to you, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And we fall down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. God, I pray for any who are here this morning who don't know you, who truly do not have a relationship with you. God, I pray today is the day that you captivate their hearts with your unending faithfulness. And that today they would see even now Jesus on the cross there for them, their sin upon his shoulders and Jesus risen again and their new life in him. God, I pray for all of us who would say, yes, you're my father, Jesus is my Lord. God, will you help each one of us? For some of us, it's to walk out into that lobby, go find a life team member and say, I need to take a step today. God, I pray for those folks that they do it as they follow the leading of your Holy Spirit. It would not be guilt-driven or shame-driven, Father, but conviction-driven and that you would bless them in that obedience. You tell us that in your word. We're not hearers of the word only, but doers, and we're blessed in the doing. And God, for others of us who we have a different step to take today, may we walk in obedience to you. May we be faithful to you because Jesus, you are unendingly, incredibly faithful to us and we praise you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.